Well, first of all, I have to say I'm in, indebted to the writer of this series of Christian uh, expositions of the New Testament, Tom Wright. If you've never come across him, I would commend this series. It covers the whole New Testament in a few, uh, he does it in different ways, different size books. And I happen to have met him some long while ago. Um, he's an eminent scholar of the New Testament. Uh, he was a bishop in the Church of England. And he's currently a professor up in Scotland. I think he's still doing that, that work. And it was as I was using his portions per day, he takes a little small portion. It's not a daily thing, because it would go on for a long while if you took his portions and kept going. But I'm working my way through the New Testament, not in order of books, but as I kind of feel which one I go to. And it was out of thinking on what he had written that I honed in on these particular thoughts. So I've called it the local congregation because I think these are thoughts that really apply to our life as a local congregation of God's people. So I'm just picking one or two things that Paul says there, not the whole lot, and we'll, we'll content ourselves with that. So in verse 13 and 14, Paul writes, Keep alert, stand firm in the faith, be brave, be strong, whatever you do, do it with love. That's where we start, keeping alert. Now, I'm looking at the age of the congregation, and the men in particular, and asking, have ever, any of you ever stood guard duty in the military? Good. Okay. Then you'll listen carefully to what I say. <laughs> it wasn't my duty to be the guard. It was my duty to run the the telecom system. I was on duty alone with the responsibility for all the international telecommunications systems of Guyana. I was 21. I hadn't much experience, if any, of telling soldiers what to do or where to go. But anyway, I'd got to work that night. I'd found that two grenades had been thrown at the installation and we had a whole platoon, a machine gun on the roof, and everybody was talking about a possible revolution. So that was a good introduction to the night shift. <laughs> so as the night wore on, I thought I'd wander off and see what was happening to the guards outside. The place, you know, obviously we've got a perimeter fence and everything else, as you would expect in those kind of situations. And I heard this gentle snoring coming from near where the car was parked. <laughs> and there was a soldier leaning up against a concrete post, 303 rifle attached to his hand with a band of canvas, snoring. <laughs> so I surprised him rather with my shout and asked him, could he please stay awake at least for my benefit if no one else's? Um, I thought that was the end of it. So I'm, I'm there inside the building a few nights later and as is normal, it is normal practice because we've got big alarm bells and things. We can doze off during the night, that's fine. And I would lay on the floor to have a snooze, just a snooze. And uh, I lay on the floor because we didn't really want to sit near the windows in case somebody was shooting or whatever else was going on. They might sort of catch us. And obviously fell asleep. 
And I came awake rather suddenly with the sense of cold steel against my neck. My first thought was, ah, the revolution. Which side is the soldier on now? (laughs) But it wasn't. It was the guard that I'd caught a few nights earlier, smiling at me down the barrel of his rifle. (laughs) Just a humorous example from real life of how to keep alert or not keep alert. We can in our Christian lives be exactly the same. We intend to stay awake and with it and aware of the world around us and how it impinges on our Christian belief and practice. Or we can drift off into a kind of syncretistic haze where we don't really know the Christian ethic from the world's ethic and all those kind of things. And that is likely to come as a result of three possibilities. One is Paul in another part, in a letter to the Ephesians, he spends quite a a considerable part of chapter 6 talking about spiritual warfare, talking about the effect of Satan and his forces working against us. And you can see that. Um, It's interesting, even non-Christians can talk about evil. I I remember in my work, when, when we have mental health units, Um, up on the Princess Royal site, uh, a psychiatrist asked to meet with me over lunch and discuss the problem of evil. He didn't mean just bad people, he meant evil. He had seen things in his career, largely in the Middle East as I had, of things that seemed to speak of bigger forces than just badly behaved human beings. And he wanted to discuss that. So we have that as a Christian We have ourselves, we're weak and frail human beings when it comes to keeping on the straight and narrow and we can just give room for thoughts that don't really belong. So we've got ourselves. And we've got the community around us as well. One of the things that happens in my work is that you end up occasionally having conversations with doctors and sometimes with nurses but quite often with doctors about ethics what is ethically right or wrong. And if you are in this kind of position, like I've been now for over 10 years, you'll find that modern ethics in Britain is a very fluid affair. There is no very straightforward philosophy. If there's any philosophy, the country is generally following it. It's called the utilitarian philosophy. If you want to look that up, you'll have some idea. The BBC claims to follow it. The BBC publicly states stated that it follows a utilitarian philosophy, doesn't follow anything Christian or anything else. Very postmodern, secular idea. And so it will impact some big questions. It impacts how we treat people at the end of their lives. It treats how we think about people that want to end their lives. It impacts a lot of things. It impacts how we treat sick children, sick babies, and so on. And it, and it affects how we actually think about the distribution of what is available to make us better. You need a massive... Oh, the NHS budget is big enough as it is, but you need a much bigger budget than that if everybody was going to have everything that was on offer. So there's... And all this reduces to... Ethics, and we have sometimes meetings that look at, look at this kind of thing. So that our ethics are going to be based on our belief system as Christians. They're not going to be based on some other philosophical system if we're actually a practicing Christian. 
So the problems in Corinth were no real different to this. Paul was highlighting these problems. And when you read the letters to Corinth, which are quite long, you'll come across them quite clearly. The Corinthian Christians came from two groups of society predominantly. They came from the Jewish community and they came from pagan, other religious kind of society that was following more or less the same path at that particular time of Roman and Greek gods and and that kind of thing, with all kind of rituals. And as those that had become Christian, they were constantly asking themselves, what do I go along with in society and in my previous religion, and what do I not go along with? What is acceptable and what is not acceptable? And so Paul was having to, as you read the letters, deal with some quite serious issues that probably aren't relevant to us in the detail of them, but certainly the principles would all be there. So it's well worth reading both epistles of Paul to see what that is and see, see what it is we, we have to do. In Britain today, most people, generally speaking, in the younger generation, tend to sort of grab bits and pieces of different systems of religion and philosophy and, and, and have a kind of belief system based on that. There are some religions that are getting more popular. The most popular belief system that's well known in the NHS would probably be Buddhism. Um, But in the bed, the patient, the average patient, the majority are still actually Christian. They say they're Christian. I think on average, on our database, I would find that 55% of people say they're Christian. So people have different ideas of how to live in our society, very, very different to things that we might have known just a few decades ago. So all those things are prevalent within the church and they can sometimes be seen in the history of our different denominations as well as to how we actually come to a decision of how we engage with society. What do we actually believe? What do we actually follow? How do we understand Jesus? How do we understand his call on our lives? How do we understand his life and work? All these things. And they vary a little, but not a lot. But not at, not at the basics. Um, In my work in in the Middle East, I was in what's called the Middle East Council of Churches. I was on the staff of this somewhat august body. Um, And it has more, it it covers the widest number of churches collectively of any community in the world. From the oldest church founded in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 through to the modern Protestants, as they would be seen as very latecomers, people like Anglicans and Presbyterians, and <laughs> you might think a quite ancient history, but no, they're very recent history to the Middle East. And you would find actually that if you travel back through their history, they come all from one or other of the creeds that are very well known in the church. So at the root, they're all believing the same thing, but in practice, They look very different. One of the uh, things that's happening within all these churches, as you will know, even it's happened in England from the 1950s onward, is a a renewal coming through the Holy Spirit in all the different denominations, all the different churches that has caused churches to really thrive and grow. 
And the biggest renewal movement I came across was in Lebanon. Lebanon in a civil war, a huge public prayer meeting of renewal held every month. A big challenge to the authorities. In those days, in the 70s and 80s, the people running Lebanon, Lebanon were really the Syrians. And I don't know what you've learned about Syria from the media, but it's a very, very controlling society, and it wants to know what all its citizens are doing. Its uh, interior ministry security system is based quite strongly on the Stasi of old Eastern Germany. And so they were very interested in this big prayer meeting, and so various spies would come from the government and sit in the prayer meeting trying to get in and whatever. But um, you could usually... It's funny, you can always tell someone that's not really praying. <laughs> it's, it kind of, they stood out of it. But it was a challenge because it didn't challenge, it wasn't about politics, it was about relationship with Jesus. The whole thing was so different, it really just didn't make any sense to them. And that's how we need to be really those that are constantly seeking to renew our faith in Christ, to renew our relationship with each other, to renew ourselves so that in the community we are a challenge. Not that we're going to sort of uh, see the community turned upside down necessarily, but we will be a challenge because we are constantly, daily renewed by our reading of scripture and, and prayer. So Paul says, be brave and be strong. And when that happens, when you're in a, a society that is singularly at odds with what you believe and what you practice, there will at some point come persecution. It will come. I mean, my only kind of real experience of that in business in Britain, because I worked overseas most of my life, really, um, I was once presented with a budget for a project and asked to sign it by my manager. And the budget didn't work. Quite frankly, it was going to lose money. There was some linkage with important people or whatever they want to call themselves, very high up, that meant that all this had to be signed, supposedly. But it was just a lie. The whole thing wasn't going to work. It was a big multinational company. You'd know the name if I told you. And I refused to sign it. I said, I'm going to work. The last person that signed a project like that, and it didn't work, he was sent off unaccompanied to Saudi Arabia for six months as penance. I was not going to fall for that one. <laughs> but I found myself quietly heaved out of that department about a month later and sent to other pastors. <laughs> they really wanted me to sign so that little Lord Fontelry could have his way, whoever he was. <laughs> so yes, persecution can come in different ways. Or it come, can come in very dramatic ways, like we've seen in the last month with this group of Christians that you may never have heard of before, the Assyrians. How many of you had heard of the Assyrian Christians? It was my privilege in the Middle East to meet with their leader. I know the Assyrian Christians quite well. And some of those were captured by this ISIS outfit in North Africa. And 21 of them were executed. And the Archbishop of Canterbury was talking about them the other day, and he said, it's reported that each one of them said, before they were executed, Jesus is Lord. 
every single one faithful to Christ to the end. You may never have heard of these people, but they've been persecuted almost incessantly from when they started as a church in almost the days of the New Testament. We don't have such a history like that in Britain. We are very privileged, in a way, to not be subject to that kind of terror. And it's important to pray every day for these communities that always no persecution. In the entire time I worked in the Middle East Council of Churches, there was a war on somewhere. There were people fleeing persecution. Regularly we would have people simply turn up off a plane. They'd managed to get a ticket, they managed to get a visa, get in the country. Cyprus is actually quite easy to just fly into and just, they'll say, yeah, welcome, you can stay here a few days. And then they turn up and say, well, I've, I've run away from Iran, I've run away from Iraq, I've run away from here. You know, I'm, you know, my family's being persecuted and can you help me? You know, it was regular. It was normal life almost to live in that kind of context. So Paul is aware because he suffered plenty of persecution in the early church and in his journeys. And so he's saying, be bold, be brave, be alert and don't worry about when you are brought before the authorities. He's simply reflecting on what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 12. Don't be anxious when you're brought before authorities to be treated unfairly and all the rest of it because at that time the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. You don't need to prepare. You just need to be alert to the Holy Spirit and that's very important. So, how is Paul going to continue this ministry to the Corinthians? He's going to do it by sending a young man, Timothy. And I'm aware that you're going to have another minister coming by the end of this month. And I guess he's younger than many of us here. I think he's considerably younger than me. I think he's even got quite young children. (laughs) And Whether he's as young as Timothy, I I doubt myself, but Timothy was a young leader and Paul was going to put the Corinthian church under his guidance. There was going to be no email, text, mobile, any form of communication other than a hand-carried note that was ever going to pass between these two men in this ministry. Maybe you remember a time like that. Um... I remember being stuck in parts of the world where I couldn't communicate with my family or anybody else. Absolutely impossible. The only way I got letters out of the middle of the deserts of Omar when I was there was to give it to a Bedouin tribesman and ask him to pass it on. It was the most reliable way of getting a letter back to England. They pass it from one driver to another en route to Muscat and shove it in a letterbox. And it reached my parents about two weeks later. Well, that was the method Paul used. I was using it in the 1970s. (laughs) So Timothy would have been more or less on his own. And he would be facing a very, very difficult congregation. Now, I'm not saying you're a difficult congregation. (laughs) But it's a challenge when a younger person comes in and there's a very established church that they're coming in to lead, or at least established to some extent. 
And so it's, it's a challenge. So Paul says, I'm sending Timothy. Um, we know that Timothy has quite an impeccable upbringing and record in the Christian life. So it was, uh, he, he obviously was raised a Jew initially. But so he was well versed in the scriptures as they had them then. And it will be a challenge to the Corinthians because Paul, if you read the letters, has a number of things that he's trying to deal with in the Corinthian church, a number of problems. Um, one of the things in Corinth, and, and we don't really get it here in England anymore, um, if, if you remember years and years ago, we, we heard of people who are great orators, who are great grand public speakers. They could give fantastic you know, addresses in the House of Lords or House of Commons or somewhere. They were noted for their public speaking. Well, in Corinth, these kind of men were out in the sort of main square, a bit like a speaker's corner sort of thing. If you go to Corinth today, you'll see it in the, in the main centre of the town where they stood and where Paul indeed stood himself. And in Corinth, they wanted all these orators to be very flowery, very expansive, and, and quote all the great you know, philosophers of the time. And Paul was saying to them, this has got absolutely nothing to do with how to be a Christian preacher. Absolutely nothing. I'm not like that. I'm not going to send you anybody like that. So don't expect all this flowery oratory stuff from people that are speaking about Jesus. In other words, it was a complete contradiction of what the world was throwing at them on the street. And that will be true today. What we preach is largely at odds with what is spoken on the street in, in, in public places as to what happens. But it is a challenge, and I would encourage you with the coming of your new minister to just welcome him and see what God brings through his ministry, see what happens next. Sometimes younger leaders have clearer insights. Sometimes they can bring very challenging words. Um, I have an experience uh, that was really challenging to me. I was leading a seminar over a weekend up in northeastern Germany in a town called Wiesmar, a seminar on Islam because the church was having a big outreach program to Albania. And every member of that church was attending the seminar for the whole weekend. That's quite a big, big thing, really, for a church to do that. Anyway, at the end of, uh, pretty much coming to the end of my stay there, a young man dressed in a leather jacket with chains hanging down and I don't know what else, came up to me and he said, I, I think I've got a word from the Lord for you. So as he's rattling along in German, I sort of called my translator over. I thought, you'd better translate this because I don't want to get muddled here. <laughs> my German's not that brilliant. Um, and he said in translation roughly this, you will lose everything, but you will be drawn closer to Jesus, and then be led into a work the scale of which you have no idea how big it is. I thought, well, for somebody to come up and tell you that, either they're just dreaming or something, or there must be something in it. So I said I would go away and pray, and then I found out who the young man was. He was the son of the Baptist pastor of Rostock, a very well-known church in Rostock, and he was a very mature young man in that church. Over the ensuing 12 months, 
I did indeed virtually lose everything. I landed back in Linfield, and I didn't know what was going to happen next. I had no idea. Not a clue. I spent a lot of time praying, reading the scriptures. And then, I won't tell you the story, but laughingly it began through a double-glazing salesman. <laughs> so I can tell you the rest of the story another time. But I was led to meet a couple of businessmen, and we were the pioneers of Christian satellite television in the Middle East and North Africa. That's, that was the big thing. So all three parts of this prophetic word came exactly true. It was a huge work. I had no idea that in my missionary career I would be involved in broadcasting the gospel to literally millions of people at any given moment. And that went on for a number of years. So sometimes extraordinary things happen through young people when you're older and you really have no idea what is going on except that you have to go away and pray about it. And that might happen here. You never know. But in all of this, and many other things that Paul says, Paul says one thing about how we should behave as a congregation, how we should go about all these things that we are doing. And that is, do it with love. Do everything with love, he says in verse 14. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. What is that, you say? I notice some of you are frowning. How many of you have experienced a holy kiss? I don't, I don't mean a friendly French type, tapping your own. No, a, a, a genuine Christian holy kiss. No, you probably haven't. In the Middle East, it's very common. It's endured for centuries. It's where you press one cheek against the other, and you do that left, right, left, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Demonstration, without a word, I'm Christian. That's me. The whole world around you will know that you are Christian if you greet one another that way. For me, it was quite common, uh, a common experience that I got used to in the end. <laughs> As an Englishman, I wasn't quite used to it at first. Uh, but it was actually the means whereby I got a very important message once. I was in Syria in Damascus with a group of Christian leaders and we were having some very sensitive meetings both with the government and with the church around the time of the end of the hostage crisis and uh, we were meeting with this group with the head of the Syrian Orthodox Church and at the end because there are government minders with us recording everything that we do the Syrian patriarch he just motioned me with his finger just very gently to come up to him and he greeted me with a holy kiss. And during that kiss, he whispered in my ears a secret message to take back to the leaders in Cyprus. Very useful in a country that's full of persecution and watching the church like a hawk by the authorities. You can communicate with a holy kiss. So I suddenly found, actually, this is quite an interesting way of getting messages around as well. But we may not use that tradition. In fact, it's been noticed, and Tom, no Tom Wright noticed it in his book, it's taken a long, long time for people, even within the Anglican tradition, to get used to greeting one another with the peace in the communion service. 
and, and being a bit more informal than just shaking hands. But you see what it means. It's demonstrating that we love each other as a community of Christians. And Jesus makes it very clear that this is incredibly important. Do you know that for Jesus, that is the most significant form of evangelism? Jesus said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. That's John 13, verse 35. The demonstration of love within the Christian community should be so different and so dramatically different from the society around it that everyone knows that this group of people are disciples of Jesus simply by the way they love each other. No need for big evangelistic missions. Everybody would know immediately. And that love demonstrated would be the challenge. If you really want to know community and love within a community, then join the Christians. They know how to do that. A big challenge, even in our day. And as we often have different ideas about how to evangelize, maybe that's one we haven't really thought of for a long time. How do we demonstrate our love for each other so that the whole community actually becomes aware that the love that we have for each other is is not just because we're like-minded, not just because we all go to church. or it's, it's not like a social club. It's not like the golf club or the tennis club just because we like doing that particular thing. It's because we're disciples of Jesus, because we're followers of Jesus. And this is the key thing that, that marks us out as different from any other group of religious people. The whole idea in Christianity is about relationship with God and through that relationship with God with Jesus, relationship with each other. It's all about relationship, not about just believing a set of written rules and regulations or whatever else or philosophy or whatever it is. It's because we have relationship, we are children of God and because we're all children of God and born again of the Spirit, we have love for each other that demonstrates that we are, in a way, definitely unique in the world. So, as we look at these, just three examples of how we live as a congregation, the fact that we've got to be alert and aware of all that's going on around us and within the church as well and within our personal lives, you've got to stay awake Spiritually, we can't relax, we can't go off our guard, as it were. We need to be aware of how God is using all of us, whether it's young or old. And learn from each other. And we need to do everything, absolutely everything we do, with real love. The love of Jesus in our hearts expressed towards each other.